Amen. And be seated. Thank you so much for being here. Man, the songs are hitting right on target to just places that I've needed spoken into over this last week. I don't know what you're going through and uh, what your struggle is. I know that we live in a broken world, and so we're all struggling in some fashion, some respect. But God is the God of breakthrough. He doesn't stop being the impossible God because our situation and our circumstances feel impossible. And uh, I'm thankful for that today. Um, We are in week three of this series we're doing called Foundations. We're really just looking from the Word of God about what is the core elements to our faith so the Spirit of God can continue to take us deeper to grow not just our knowledge of the Bible, but our knowledge of who God is, a knowledge of Himself, and how we as believers in Christ can live a life in the Spirit and be aware of what He's doing, how He's speaking, and how He wants to use us to bring the kingdom of God from heaven down to earth. Many of us, we get caught up in, and I know in my own Christian life, we get caught up in this idea that the totality of the Christian life is simply coming to church on Sunday, and then going home and living the rest of your life. But there's so much more to what God wants for each and every individual believer in their lives, more than just what we experience in the service on Sunday. This is just a benefit of being a believer in Christ. There are things that God wants to do, supernatural things God wants to do in you and through you so that you can be His revelation to the world about the amazing things that are found and discovered in Christ Jesus. And and so we're looking in Hebrews because the writer of Hebrews addresses this group of people. You can read through the book, and it's a a book full of uh, rich and deep theology on what Christ really accomplished on the cross how Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament, every requirement of the law, everything was satisfied in the death of Christ, in the pouring out of His blood. But in Hebrews chapter 5, he's talking to these early Christians, these these Christians that were living just after the time of Christ and, and beginning this whole process of forming the church and telling the world about Jesus. He tells them that these that have been believers for a period of time, some of them could have been believers, that had become believers at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. There there are these believers that had been faithful and believing for a long period of time, but they had gotten to a point in their Christian journey where they stopped growing. And here the writer of Hebrews is telling these believers, you should be teachers by now. You've been with the Lord this long, long enough. You shouldn't act like a brand new Christian anymore. There is more that God wants to do in you and through you, and you should have a desire to grow, that the foundation was laid. Let's not continue laying the foundation, but let's build upon the foundation so not only can you be all that God wants you to be in Christ Jesus, but you can turn and teach and train others to become all they can be. And so last week, we talked about repentance and faith, recognizing that the, the gospel message is really centered on this idea that sinners can be saved, that, that we can be saved, forgiven of our sins, and restored to a relationship with our Heavenly Father. But true salvation contains two elements, faith and repentance. You cannot have true salvation absent one of those elements. So you cannot say that you have faith 
and not have repentance. James says, if you say you have faith but don't have anything to show for it, what point is it? It's useless. It's worthless. That's just talk. Faith without repentance, without works of righteousness, is useless. Because if you truly believe something, it's going to change the way you live. If you truly believe it, right? If you believe that the chair you're sitting in right now was about to collapse, how many of you would still be sitting in it? You wouldn't because you believe that something is going to affect you in a negative way. So you'd make a change of location. You'd change where you're sitting. If we truly believe what we say we believe, it will change the way we live. And you cannot simply just have repentance without faith either. You can't say, well, I'm going to try to live a good moral life without placing your entire faith in the Son of God because that's religion. Religion says, I can become good enough, and therefore God will accept me. We're all sinners. We all have fallen short of the glory of God. There's not a person in here who can get righteous enough to earn salvation. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, it's by grace that God saved us through faith. It's not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, lest any man should boast. There's not a man on the planet that can boast about earning salvation. We were born into sin. We are sinners not because we've sinned. We sin because we're sinners. It is part of this nature that's in us because of the fall of mankind when Adam and Eve rebelled against God. We sinful human beings uh, do not have the capacity to do good enough. Isaiah, in his book, he writes that our righteousness, the good things that we do, compared to God's holiness, are like filthy rags. And I've heard many people compare what those rags were in in essence, they could be likened to the rags that you would take off of a leper when you're changing their wounds. If you've been in a hospital and you've seen somebody with road rash or third-degree burns and they wrap them in cloth, after a period of time, they become putrid. They have to change those rags and give them fresh rags. The writer of Isaiah is likening our greatest efforts to the filthy rags. That even, it's like offering that to God. Say, God, look what I did for you. And God looks at that and be like, that's disgusting, right? Because everything we do, everything we have is stained by our sinful nature. We are not righteous enough to get to heaven on our own, which is why we needed Christ to intervene. So we don't just have repentance with, to receive salvation, and we don't just have faith to receive salvation. We have both repentance and faith. And we repent because we first believe. The cross of Jesus made salvation possible for Jesus paid our debt, but his resurrection made it available to all who trust in him. That is the good news. That's the good news. We're destined to be judged. We're destined to die in our sins. But through the death and resurrection of Christ, we have the freedom, the ability to be saved, to be forgiven, to be restored to our Heavenly Father. We could just close it down right there. That's good enough, right? That's good enough. But there's more to the story. When we trust in Christ, you see, we come alive and we become aware of or should become aware and awake to the life that He has redeemed us to live. God's intention wasn't just to make us sin-free or to pay our sin debt. There's more to the story than just the forgiveness of sins. There's not just an earthly life we live, but there's a heavenly life, a kingdom life that he desires for us to lead. And, and this is where a conversation of salvation 
comes up in our foundation because there are many theologians on different sides of the aisle who have different ideas, doctrines, beliefs about salvation and the security of salvation, whether or not in your life you can come to a point where you can lose your salvation, whether or not you can be saved at one point and then stop being saved at another point. And so there's two different arguments to this idea. It's really called the doctrine of eternal security. Are you saved? And once you're saved, always saved? Or at some point, can you lose your salvation? And we need to understand what the Bible teaches about this very topic so that we don't build on a faulty foundation. Those who believe your salvation is secure, meaning that once you're saved, you can never lose your salvation. You're never in fear of being judged or falling into judgment again. They'll point to passages such as John 10, 28 and 29. You might have heard it at some point where it says that my sheep hear my voice and that I know them and they follow me and no one shall pluck them out of my hand. And my Father, who is greater than all, is, um, has given them to me and no one can pluck them out of my Father's hand. In other words, who has been given to God, who has been given to Christ, cannot be torn away from Christ. And, and they'll also look at Hebrews 13, 5, where God promises never to leave or forsake us, which means he won't abandon his children. He won't forsake his children. And they'll look at verses like this and say, see, once you become a child of God, there's not a possibility for you to stop being a child of God, to lose your salvation. But there are those on the other side of the aisle who have criticisms about this doctrine, this theology, and they will say things like this, that um, you can forsake your salvation, you can turn away from your salvation and therefore lose it. But I don't even like that phrase, lose your salvation, because our salvation is not as trivial as what, like my car keys are. I mean, if you think about it, we're saying, can you lose your salvation? I can lose my car keys, which means I can misplace them. And, and if you're my gender, you also have a chronic condition that many refer to as man eyes, and that prevents you from finding the things that you look for, which makes it easy to lose socks, shoes, and plain sight. Like, I literally think that this condition, that your, your mind somehow removes data from what you're seeing, so you might be staring at it, but you just can't see it. I think it's a very real thing. It's something that we struggle with. It's a reason why I got married. I need someone to help me find what I'm looking for. But, but our salvation's not trivial like that. It's not something you can just misplace and lose and, and, and try to, you know, freak out about where to find it. Like you're in a rush and a hurry and you can't find your keys. Salvation is not like that at all. But this is the language that some people use. If I could lose my salvation like losing my car keys, I'd be in a lot of trouble. But some people claim that against those that believe that once you're saved, you're always saved, or that your salvation is eternally secure, they claim or they criticize that doctrine by saying that just grants people a license to live however they want after they pray a prayer and say they're saved. So I give my life to Christ, I pray, I ask Jesus into my heart, and then I can just live however I want, and, and then I don't ever have to worry about judgment and the like. And this is why we talked about repentance and faith last week, that it requires both. But there is something to be said about those who claim that you can lose or forsake your salvation because they will point to passages of Scripture like John 15, 
where Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, uh, you will bear much fruit. But those who don't bear fruit will be pruned off and thrown into the fire. And they'll say, see, Jesus says you have to remain. If you don't remain, then you're going to be cast into the fire. And they will also look at passages like our text in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. And I'm going to read this passage of Scripture for you. It says this, For it is impossible for those who are once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. So from the onset, right from the word of God, it looks like God is telling us that people can't lose their salvation like their car keys, but they could come to a place where they willfully reject their relationship with God, reject their faith, turn their back on their faith, and hence fall away from their faith. So it's, it's not uncommon when we discuss this issue, if I am having a theological discussion with others, that this passage of Scripture will come up. And in those conversations, I'll ask people who believe you can turn away from your faith, I'll ask them, well, if you lose your salvation or reject your faith, could you turn back again and get saved again? And almost without fail, many will say, well, yes, I believe if you turned back to Christ and gave your heart back to Christ that he would accept you. The only problem with that in this passage here in Hebrews 6, if you look again, Hebrews 6, 6 says, those who fall away cannot be renewed again to repentance. They, they can't be renewed again. If they fall away, if they walk away, if that's what the Bible is saying here, that you can reject your salvation and turn away from it and fall away from it, that you cannot get it back again. So who's right? Who's right? The eternal security folks who believe once saved, always saved? Or the you can reject your salvation or lose your salvation camp? And this is an important question for us. And I believe the Bible is clear on what it's teaching us and what the point is of understanding truly what salvation is all about. So I want to break down this text here in Hebrews 6, and then I want to relate it to a couple of parables that Jesus told us, and I think that will reinforce our understanding about what salvation is and the importance of it and how sure a salvation we actually have and what, what that means for us. But let's go back and look at verse 4. And we're going to do what we often do when I study for messages or if you were to take a class in theology in college. We do what's called a word study. And what a word study does is it breaks down the key words in a passage and gives you the meaning of those words so that you can then extrapolate what the author is actually trying to say. We're not going to get into all the Greek and Hebrew because that will be Greek and Hebrew to you. You know, it just won't, it, it'll be kind of a... Uh, uh, it's not that important because I have the, um, the definitions here for you. But uh, we're going to look at the main ideas. And then we're going to discuss what those words actually mean. So in verse 4, the first part of that verse, it says this. For it is impossible. Somebody say impossible. It's impossible for those who are once enlightened. So let's look at a couple words in that phrase. The word impossible literally in the original language means unable to be done. 
It's impossible, right? It's unable to be done. This cannot happen. It is impossible. So it's impossible. What's impossible? He's going to go on and continue to tell us. For those who are once enlightened. Somebody say enlightened. So now we're talking about people. The something's impossible for people who are enlightened. This word enlightened means illuminated or given understanding. They didn't know something, but now they do. You know, the proverbial light bulb goes off. Aha! Eureka! I've got the answer. You know, it's something they didn't know. Now they know it. We'll continue on. They were enlightened. It says, and have tasted. Somebody say tasted. Tasted. This word tasted means sampled. It means sampled. How many of you like going to the ice cream store? All my kids in the room should raise their hand. We, got, we like going to ice cream. Every day it seems like we're asked, can we go to rallies and get ice cream? You know, I don't like going through the drive-thru. I like going in and seeing all the flavors. You know, we go down to Frankenmuth and go to Jamie's, and they have like 30 flavors. Or Baskin-Robbins, they have 30 flavors. And I don't know, it, it's, it puts me in kind of a psychological, you know, tension because I see all these and I want them, I want them all. It's like, it's like Pokemon. I want them all, you know. But uh, I, I want to have all the. I usually end up with mint chocolate chip because that's my favorite all-time ice cream ever. Uh, because when I can't make up my mind, I just go with what I'm used to. But uh, you see all these flavors. But what do you do if you see a flavor that you want to check out, that you want to you want to try? What you get a sample, and they give you a little tiny spoon. They scoop it in, and or a little like tongue depressor thing, and they scoop it in. You get a little taste of it, and then you throw your spoon away. And that helps you inform your decision on whether or not you're going to invest in that flavor or move on to the next one. So that's what this word tasted means. It means sampled. So those who have, it's impossible for those who are once enlightened and have sampled or tasted like an ice cream flavor. What have they tasted? It's the heavenly gift. Somebody say heavenly gift. What is the gift that God has given us through Christ Jesus our Lord? Salvation, right? Ephesians 2, 8, 9. I just quoted it not long ago. By grace, you are saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is a gift. It's a heavenly gift. So now we're talking about those who were enlightened. They were brought into an understanding. They've sampled like ice cream, salvation, continue on and said, and we're made partakers. Somebody say partakers. Partakers. This word means participants. You're becoming a participant with. So they, they were enlightened. They've sampled. They've become a participant with who? The Holy Ghost. We know who He is. It's the Holy Spirit of God. So they've become a participant with the Spirit. Verse 5. And it says, and they have tasted. Somebody say tasted. It's the same word. So not only have they have tasted salvation, but now they've also tasted the good word of God. What is the good word? It's the good news. It's the gospel, right? So they've heard the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They've tasted. They've sampled it. And then it also says the power. Somebody say powers. Powers. That is the word dunamis in the Greek. If we think of Acts 1.8, Jesus said to his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and all to the ends of the earth. This word powers or power is associated with miracles, with the gifts of the Spirit, uh, with the supernatural of God. It's also associated with 
uh, the gospel itself. In Romans, Paul says, I'm not ashamed for the gospel of Christ. It is the power, the dunamis of God at work in the hearts of those who believe. So the power of God to regenerate, to cause a person to believe again, is released when they invest in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we have the powers, the dunamis, that they have also sampled. And then it is they sample the powers of what? The world to come. Somebody say world to come. What is the world to come? The kingdom of God. Right? The kingdom of God theologically is the now and future kingdom. Jesus said the kingdom of God is within you. But we also know that one day Jesus is going to return. He's going to set up his throne in Jerusalem. He's going to reign and he's going to put sin to death once and for all. Hallelujah, somebody say. Amen, right? So there's a future kingdom that's coming. Paul in Romans chapter 8 says we've been given the Spirit as a foretaste of that future glory. That as believers in the work of the Spirit in us is a taste, a sample of what we're going to experience for all eternity in heaven. So they've tasted the power they've also of the kingdom of God. Now in verse 6 is where it, it kind of ties in here. Remember, something's impossible. What's impossible? The writer of Hebrews is about to tell us. It's impossible, in verse 6, if they shall fall away. Somebody say if. When you start a sentence with if, this is a hypothetical sentence. It's a hypothetical situation. Everyone plays with their children at one time or another the what if game. Well, what if this? What if this? What if this? Right? If is usually demarks a hypothetical conversation. This word if in the original language is a primary participle that also means then, also, um, it could also be, you know, and, etc., etc. So we're talking about cause and effect here. Something's impossible for those who have tasted the things of God if they shall fall away. Somebody say fall away. So if these that were once enlightened fall away, we're get about ready to get into what's impossible. Fall away here means to deviate from the right path or turn away from the truth, to turn aside. If they shall fall away, here's what's impossible. The rest of verse 6. They cannot be renewed again. Somebody say again. Again means renewal, repetition, or action. Well, what is it that they can't be done again and again? Renew. That means restore, renovate. Anybody watch like TLC and those renovation shows? You have a house that's broken down. It you know, looks like they just need to bulldoze it over. Somebody buys it real cheap, invests some money in it, and restores it to beauty. This word renewed also means to renovate. So they can't be renovated again. We're brought back to original intention. And then what can they not be renewed again to? Finally, the word in verse 6 is repentance. They cannot be renewed again to the place where they decide to change their mind and go another direction. In essence, to bring them to a place of repentance again. So when you break down the passage by key words, you can start to see really what the author and really the Holy Spirit is trying to bring to our minds as we kind of look at what is the purpose and point of this passage. So the question you have to ask after you break this down is, why is it impossible 
to renew again a person that has tasted all of these things, sampled all of these things, to repentance again. And he finishes it out in verse 6 by saying this. Here's the reason why that's impossible. Seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. Jesus died once for all sin for all time. Salvation is made available and possible to everyone who would call on his name. So the author here, if we're looking at the two sides, eternal security or the fall away crowd, and we're looking at this passage to prove that you can reject your faith and walk away, the author is either saying a person that was born again and walked away from their faith in so doing, has disconnected themselves from Christ, taken themselves out from underneath the grace of God through faith in Christ Jesus. They've dethroned Jesus from their heart and have put him back on the cross in shame, in rejection, and therefore they have lost all hope of salvation and can never get that salvation back again. That's the only way you can read that if you believe he's talking about people who have been born again. Or... If you're on the other side, there might be a different scenario at work here. And we can look at the the reason why context is important. Anytime you see a troubling passage in the Bible, you have to continue, you have to read what came before it, and you have to continue reading what happens after it to give you clarity on what the author is actually saying. And we can see the clarification of what he's really saying by looking at the illustration he gives right after he makes this statement in verses 7 and 8. In verses 7 and 8, this is what the writer of Hebrews says about this person, the impossibility, the renewal of repentance. He likens this scenario to this illustration. He says, The earth which drinketh in the rain that cometh oft upon it, and bringeth forth herbs meet for them by whom it is dressed, receiveth blessing from God. But that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected and is nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be burned." So he's talking about two fields. One field, the sower sows seed, the farmer sows seed, it grows the crop, and that field is blessed of God. There's another field that doesn't grow any crop, and it is burned and cast aside. So if we're looking at these two fields, we're looking at really the reality of one who bears fruit and the other one that does not. One that bears fruit is blessed, the other is thrown into the fire. And there's another parable that Jesus talks about in the New Testament called the parable of the sower and the seed. It's a very familiar passage of Scripture. If you've grown up in church, you've probably heard a million messages on this. But essentially, Jesus tells a parable. There's three kinds of soil. There's rocky soil. There's, there's soil with weeds and thorns. And then there is good soil. And the farmer throws seed down on the rocky soil. And before it has time to take root, birds come by and snatch it away. The thorny soil, the seeds are thrown on the thorny soil, and before it could take root, weeds choke it out and prevent any fruit to grow. And then there's good soil, which the seed takes root, it begins to grow a crop, and it produces a hundred times what was originally sown in the soil. And Jesus gives the illustration, the, the meaning of the illustrations to his disciples. He says the first soil, the rocky soil, the devil swoops down and robs the truth from the hearts of those who hear the good news so that nothing can take root, so they, they don't believe. The second soil is they, 
become interested in the things of God because of the lure of wealth and the problems in this life. They turn their back on God and pursue a self-centered, selfish life. And third are the ones who embrace the gospel, place their faith in Christ, and begin to see fruit of a true life that's repentant and faith and puts their faith in Jesus Christ. He's talking about the salvation and how that's evident in the life of a believer. So in this hypothetical situation that the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 6 is talking about, if we, if we connect the parable of the sower to these two types of fields in, in the situation in Hebrews 6, I truly believe that the Holy Spirit is not talking about a true believer in Christ who's rejecting their faith and losing or forfeiting their salvation. Because a person who is born again has not sampled the power of God, has not sampled the Holy Spirit, has not sampled salvation, but they have well drunk the Holy Spirit. They have well drunk salvation. They have been fully immersed in the blood, the water, and the Spirit. They've been baptized in the Holy Spirit, immersed from head to toe. It's not a sampling. It is an, an overwhelming immersion into God. In Christ, my wife read from Psalm 23 during worship. And in Psalm 23, it says, The Lord is my shepherd. He also talks about how my cup overflows. When you're connected to God, the river of living water, it's not a sampling. There's an overflowing that happens in the life of a believer. In John 10.10, 10, Jesus said, I've come to give you a rich and satisfying or abundant life, that the things of God are going to overflow. Those who have simply tasted or sampled are the ones who get a glimpse of what's possible, not those who have chosen to go all in with Jesus Christ. So I believe the writer of Hebrews is saying here that he's not talking about a true believer, but he's using this example of the two fields, likening it to the parable of the sower and the seed, to talk about a person who hears the good news of Jesus Christ, who hears the good news of the kingdom of God and what is to come, of what's possible to those who repent and trust in Jesus, their eyes are open, they're illuminated to this new understanding and what's been declared or preached. The same person, upon hearing the gospel, is pricked in their hearts uh, and convicted by the spirit of their sin and their need for a savior. They receive revelation of the love of Christ and they begin to sample the heavenly gift of salvation as they're drawn and, and uh, wooed by the Holy Spirit and even may experience for themselves or be witness to a miracle that's done by the one sharing the gospel, either that they're healed or delivered or some kind of sign or wonder that confirms the message of the gospel, making them a participant in the power of the Spirit or the power of the kingdom of God. And I believe this is what he's communicating, that after hearing the gospel, being illuminated to the truth, being convicted of sin, and experiencing firsthand the power of God in their life, if at that point they choose to walk away and say, hmm, I still don't want Jesus, then that, at that point there's nothing else that can be done for that individual. According to verse 6 of Hebrews 6, maybe nothing else will even be done for that individual. For they've had all the evidence they could have or they could ask for, and they still reject Jesus and maybe have so seared their conscience that they would be unable to turn to Christ because they've tasted everything God has had to offer and still they reject him, which is why it becomes impossible to renew them to repentance. This is much like the state of our enemy, the devil, who hovered before the throne of God. He was in the presence of God. He experienced privileges and rights in, in heaven, 
beyond any other angel. He experienced everything God had to offer, and still the devil rejected God. Therefore, the devil will never be redeemed, because he's seen and experienced everything God has had to offer, and still said no. Rejecting uh, the work of God in this way is also linked to the blaspheme of the Holy Spirit, which Jesus says is the unforgivable sin. In the passage where he's having this conversation with religious leaders, they're calling the work of the Spirit the work of the devil. And so he mentions this. He's like, what you say about God can be forgiven. What you say about me can be forgiven. But when you reject the Holy Spirit, that will never be forgiven. Because when you reject the work of the Spirit, which points to Christ as Messiah, which points to our need of a Savior, we thus will die in our sins completely blinded to the truth. It's not forgivable. So this is the kind of person who rejects Jesus, the kind that experiences everyone, everything that God has to offer and still says no, and then in turn is rejected. Uh, the writer of Hebrews encourages these believers in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 9. We've read this in the other messages in the series. He says, Dear friends, even though we're talking this way about people who fall away, who reject the truth, he says, we really don't believe it applies to who? You. We don't believe this applies to you. Why? Because we're confident that you are meant for better things that come with salvation. He's saying, what I've seen in you, I believe that your faith, there's evidence for your faith. There's evidence for your repentance. There's the working of the Spirit in your life. There's, there's uh, characteristics of genuine faith that I don't believe that this could be known of you. That you're not going to turn away. You're not going to walk away. And to give a, a more recent application of this passage. Uh, when we were at my brother's keeper in downtown Flint, we were there. We did like we normally do. We passed out food to the men. And then afterwards, I would go around and I'd minister to some people. And, and just this night in particular, God was showing up in an incredible way. I had some great conversations. I got to pray with a couple of guys who received Jesus as their Savior. And he was, he was uh, ministering and healing. And I was talking to this one man who uh, I was witnessing to. I had just prayed for his friend, and his friend was healed. And I was like, man, is there anything with you that I could pray for? And, and he's like, ah, I don't know. And so I was just encouraging him. And God gave me a word of knowledge that he was having issues with his shoulder. And so I asked him, he's like, man, how'd you know that? And he had been stabbed in his shoulder, and it was one of the reasons why he couldn't work, because he just had debilitating pain. And so I asked him if I could pray for his shoulder, and he reluctantly let me do that. And after I prayed a couple of times, God healed him. God miraculously healed him, and he was blown away. He's like, man, how is this even possible? And I started giving him the gospel. I said, because God loves you. He's showing you that he wants a relationship with you. He wants to forgive you of your sins and bring you uh, into your purpose, the reason why he created you. Man, and if you want to embrace that, man, you just got to give your life to Christ. And I opened the opportunity for him to invite Jesus into his life. And he's like, nah. And I'm like, your shoulder is completely healed. Like, no? Like, like, it shocked me. I was like, what do you mean, no? I mean, it's like, you're, you're fine. It's like, no, I just, I just feel like, well, what if I mess it up later? What if I mess it up later? I was like, you're, you're not going to. You become a child of God. You know, I'm, I'm trying to encourage him, but he's just like, no, nah, I'm just not wanting to do that. And so I was like, all right, man, well, I'm going to pray for you, and, and I just hope for the best. But it's like, he had the gospel. He saw what everybody else was doing. God healed him, and he still said no. 
You know, and so this is what I believe is happening in a passage of Scripture like this. He's saying when God shows up and he reveals himself to you and you still say no, what more can God do? What more, what more can he do to get your heart into a place where you're saying yes to the Lord? This reminds me of the, the second parable in Matthew chapter 18. We're not going to turn there. We'll just kind of talk about it, but it's a very a powerful parable that Jesus is using to talk to his disciples about the kingdom of God. In Matthew 18, he gives this parable that's often called the parable of the wicked servant or the unforgiving servant. And in this parable, there's this king who has a servant that owes him, uh, I forget the number in, in the Bible, but it, it equates to billions and billions of dollars in U.S. currency. That They've done the math, and something like $10 billion, $15 billion, something crazy like that. And so the king calls the servant before him, and, and um, he's calling into account this debt that he owes. And in that day, it would have been a lifetime, it would have been 20 lifetimes worth of, of debt that he would have owed. It's something crazy, like this impossible debt to pay back. And he calls his debt into collection, and the guy can't pay. And so he says to the guy, I'm going to throw you into prison. I'm going to sell your family into slavery. And you're going to continue to be rotting in prison until all your debt can be paid. And, of course, the guy is freaking out. He's, he's crying out for mercy and grace, mercy and grace. And the king finally says, okay, I'm going to forgive your debt. I'm going to wipe that clean. And I'm not going to require this of you. And the, the servant was grateful, and he goes on his day. And if you think about this in modern terms, if you were a king or if you were a business owner and another company or another person owed you $10 billion, you're going to feel that. You're going to feel that debt. That's not a debt you just wipe out, right? Some companies dream of even hitting the billion-dollar mark. I mean, that would equate to some companies' full-on portfolio, that all the wealth that they're worth could be summed up in less than a billion dollars, let alone $10 billion. So this debt was not inconsequential. This was a huge debt that he forgave. Well, then this servant leaves the king's presence, and he goes and finds another person that owed him a couple hundred bucks, and he calls his debt into collection. And this servant's like, well, I don't have the money now. I, can I pay you later? I'll work it off. I'll do whatever I can. And the, the servant that was, pay, that was forgiven the billion-dollar debt grabs him by the throat, threatens him, tosses him in prison, sells his family into slavery and, until the guy could pay back the debt. And some other servants saw what this guy did, and they reported back to the king. And, of course, this made the king rather upset. The king gets angry. And he's not angry because he's interested in the money. But he's angry at this unforgiving servant because by his own actions, this unforgiving servant literally tells the king, what you did for me had no impact in my life. What you did for me meant nothing. And so the king takes the servant, ends up throwing him into prison to be tortured until his debt could be paid. And then he turns to Peter and he says, and my heavenly father will do the same thing to you if you don't forgive people their transgressions against you. Because the question was about forgiveness. How many times should we forgive somebody? And Jesus, in essence, said, you forgive them the way God forgave you. And if you're not going to forgive others the way God's forgiven you, God's not going to forgive you either. And so he's likening this, this parable to the kingdom of God. And what's, what, what's interesting about this parable is that this servant had a taste of freedom. He had been forgiven. He had been set free. But because the sacrifice of the king to give him his freedom didn't make that much difference in his life, he remained the same as he was. 
He lived an unworthy life of that forgiveness, and thus he was cast into prison. And Jesus is telling us this story, and it's important for us to to look at this in regards to salvation, because for each and every one of us, if God were to open the books, the record of wrongs against us, it is an insurmountable debt that we owe God. There are not enough lifetimes in eternity for us to pay God back for the sin that's in our life. That there's not enough for all that we've done. There's no way that we could earn it or we could pay him back. I said earlier that even the good things we do mean nothing. They're of no value to God compared to his righteousness and his holiness. But the way the king of kings forgave our debt is he paid it with the blood of his very own son. He paid it with the blood of his very own son. When you talk about feeling that debt, feeling the sacrifice, God felt the sacrifice because in order to pay our debt, he had to bankrupt heaven. And he took care of our debt. He poured out all of his wrath upon his son in order to justify setting us free. And if that wasn't enough, if freedom wasn't enough, and it is, if God, that's all God did, that would be enough for us to worship him and commit our lives to him. But after setting us free, after paying the debt that we could not pay, he then gives us another gift, which is the Holy Spirit, to reestablish relationship together to fill us with his life, with his power, to bring us back to the original intention that he had for us before sin entered into the world. And so his kingdom can be unleashed in us and through us so that we can bring the world to life back to its original intention before sin entered into the world. That through preaching the gospel and facilitating life-changing encounters with the miraculous love and power of God, people can come to know him and have their sins forgiven as well. If we think about this Hebrews chapter 6, and this person has experienced all these things and yet turns away, when a person comes to full terms about what has, God has done through Jesus and what his desire is for us to live through, in and through this new relationship that he has and through the Holy Spirit, when you come to that realization and you walk away from that, there is no hope for salvation. There is no hope for salvation. When you walk away from what God has done, I don't know that anything God could do could turn you back. And I think this argument here, whether or not you can lose your salvation or whether it's eternally secure, really has been hijacked by our enemy to get us, give us something to argue about as Christians. I really do. You know, do you believe this? Do you not believe this? Just so that division can remain in the church. I don't believe that that is even the point of what God is trying to tell us whether or not you can or can't forfeit your salvation. The point that the Bible proclaims over and over again, the point that God is trying to convey, and what I believe the Spirit through Hebrews 6 is trying to convey, is do you really belong to Jesus? Not can you lose the salvation or can you walk away from it, but do you really belong to Jesus? In 1 John 2.19, John writes this to the churches. He says, These people left our churches, but they never really belonged with us. Otherwise, they would have stayed with us. When they left, it proved that they did not belong with us. You have to remember, when John was writing this, there were not multiple churches in a city. There wasn't this denomination and this denomination and non-denominational and, and quasi-denominational and, and you know whatever you want to make it. You couldn't just leave one church and go down the street and start attending another church. Every city had one church. 
And those cities were all connected to all the churches in the other cities. There was one church of Jesus Christ. So when they left the churches, when they left the church, they were leaving their faith. They were saying, no, I'm turning away from this. I am walking away from this. And here John says, they never really belonged with us. Why? Because they never really belonged to Jesus. They didn't really belong to Jesus. That's why they didn't stay with us. The fact that they left proved that they didn't belong. They didn't belong to the churches, and they didn't belong to Jesus. They were not true believers. Jesus, in John 8, 31, says this about true believers. In 8, 31 and 32, he says this, Jesus said to the people who believed in him, you are truly my disciples. Somebody say, truly my disciples. You are truly my disciples if you what? Remain faithful to my teachings. You are truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teachings. And if you remain faithful to my teachings, what will you know? The truth. And what will the truth do? It'll set you free. Those who remain are those who are true. And those who are true will get greater revelation of the truth and will receive breakthrough after breakthrough as they partner with the Spirit to put their sinful nature to death, embrace their identity in Christ, and walk in His glory and power. This is the evidence of a true Spirit-filled life is one that is walking in step with God. The proof of salvation is in the proverbial pudding. And what Jesus, what the king wanted for this wicked servant who wouldn't forgive is he wanted the debt that he paid to be a catalytic event in his life that would create a domino effect for him to go to every other person that owed him to offer forgiveness, that it would unleash this kindness and generosity in his life, that it would echo throughout his kingdom. And Jesus, or the Father, is desiring the same thing for us. He sent Jesus to wipe the slate clean, to offer forgiveness to those who are unworthy of forgiveness, so that it would start a catalytic event in our heart so uh, erupted with God's love for us that it would spill out of our lives into our families, into our communities, and create a domino effect that would usher in the kingdom of God. This is what God did for us. The proof of salvation is in the proverbial pudding. And Jesus said, to know if a person is really a believer, one, they will remain faithful to his teachings, and two, they will know the truth, and it's going to radically transform their lives. It's going to turn everything upside down. A person who truly believes will never reject Jesus and through faith and repentance continue learning and growing in their relationship with God in the, through the Holy Spirit until they become totally and completely His. Maybe you're here today and you're afraid about losing your salvation. That seed of doubt and fear has been implanted in your mind. Let me tell you, anything of fear is of the devil because God has not given us a spirit of fear but of power, love, and a sound mind. If you're operating in fear that you've you got to be good enough or maybe God's not going to like you, that is a demonic lie. Let me encourage you, first and foremost, salvation was not about what you've done. It's about what he did for you. The gospel is about what Jesus did for us. You didn't do anything to earn it, so you can't do anything to lose it. It's about Jesus. Salvation is a gift. You just have to receive it and put your faith in it. Number two, I would also encourage you, to meditate on this passage, 1 John 4, 18. Meditate on it all week. 
Read it every day. Break it apart, word for word, until it so saturates your soul. If you're afraid of standing before God one day and, and receiving judgment rather than salvation, 1 John 4, 18 says, Such love has no fear because perfect love expels all fear. There is a security in the unfailing love of God that can, is unmatched by anything else we experience in all the world. When you know God's love and God's heart for you, it'll create such a security in you, it won't matter what other people say. It won't matter what other people do. He says, if we're afraid, it's for fear of punishment, and it shows that we've not fully experienced his perfect love. There might be something in your life and in your past that you're holding on to, and you're allowing it to be a root of bitterness, a seed of guilt and shame in your life. And because of that seed, you've not laid that at God's feet and let the blood of Christ so wash that out of your life. It's this open door for the enemy to say, see, you're not good enough. See, you can't, God doesn't like you. How could God do anything with you? How could God, you know, that's in your life. How could you ever do anything good for the Lord? How could you ever step out of faith? God would never use you that way. Look at, look at who you are. The enemy constantly feeds us these things to breed fear in our lives. When God's word says his love casts out all fear. When you recognize how secure you are in the love of God, that nothing can separate you from God, he will never abandon you or reject you. That gives you a holy confidence to say, I'm not my sin, I am one with my Savior, and I'm going to live for his honor and glory. God will do everything in his power to keep you. He did everything he could to rescue you. He's going to do everything in his power to keep you. And the amazing thing is, is if we truly encounter the Lord and give him our hearts, we will never want to leave, no matter how bad life gets, because his goodness and his love is more powerful than our greatest suffering. This is how Job, in the book of Job, after losing everything, his family, the only thing he had left was his wife and his life. That's it. He didn't even have his health, but he had his life. And he could still look to God and say, you give and you take away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. Such love has no fear, because perfect love casts out all fear. And maybe you're here today and you have some major fears in your life. There's some insecurities that you have with your relationship with God. In just a moment, when the music begins to play and we begin to go into a time of response and prayer, I invite you to come fall down and lay that down at the Father's feet. And let God begin to purge that fear with the blood of His Son and remind you about the love that you have in Him. Maybe you're here today and you're, you're kind of like that, that unforgiving servant where you recognize the gospel message, but it hasn't really done much in your life. There's not been this catalytic event, this domino effect where, where it's created a change in you. You've got religion, you attend church, and you have you know, these spiritual things you can point to, but you know in your heart that something's not right. There's an apathy, there's a dullness, there's a lack of desire, and God wants to do something in you. In a moment, come lay down. Lay down on the, at the Father's feet and give your heart to the Lord. You might be here and you might be 99% sure that you're on your way to heaven, but I'm not gambling on 1%. 1% is too high a stakes to gamble on an eternity of separation with God. If you're here today and you're not 100% sure that you're on your way to heaven, in a minute, come forward and let's pray together and let's seal that deal. And let's 
Allow the Spirit of God to so fill your life today that you walk away with a holy confidence, not afraid of what others may say or what circumstances may come, but knowing confidently who you are in Christ and what God's purpose and plan is for your life. Let's bow our heads and let's close our eyes in this place as the music begins to play. I believe... I believe that the enemy has been able to sow so many seeds of doubt and fear. So many lies that have got us distracted. I believe there are people here in this room today that don't really believe that they belong to the Lord. Not that they don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Not that they don't believe that he died and rose again. Not that they believe that he doesn't love them, but they just don't believe that, that they can get close to God because they have a fear that they don't really belong to the Lord, that he doesn't really like them. He doesn't really want a relationship with them. And so you've come to God in fear and trembling, but fearful that he's going to reject you when you lean close, which is why your heart has remained at a distance from the Lord. Why you've not fully embraced the life that God has for you. It's because you're afraid that if you open yourself wholly to him, he's going to turn you away. Friends, if we look at Jesus in the cross, and we look at everything that Christ went through, God's not turning anyone away. He's leaving the 99 to pursue the one. It doesn't matter your past. It doesn't matter your frailties your weaknesses, your insecurities. God is so madly with each and every one of you because he created you, he designed you, he desires a relationship with you. And he has a plan for your life that is going to explode in this world, revealing the kingdom. He's going to begin doing a seed work. He wants to plant seed in your heart that grows and produces fruit, not one that withers away or gets choked out by the cares of the world. Whatever God is doing in your heart in this moment, don't reject what the Spirit is doing. Take a step of faith. Embrace what He's doing. Embrace what He's speaking. And when we stand, you come forward and you pray and you call out to God and you let the Spirit of God do a work. If you would like me to pray for you, I'll be here to pray with you. If you need to accept Jesus and become 100% sure you're a child of God, come down. There's no shame in that. We rejoice in that. This is what we live for. Father, I just pray right now in Jesus' name. I pray for everyone here. God, that ears would be open and hearts would be willing and that you would have your way. Draw every heart. Holy Spirit, release your healing power. And we give these moments to you in Jesus' name.